Well, my wife's going to kill me for this when I get home. Two weeks from today, at about this time, I hope to be standing on the top of my first 14er. Does anybody know what a 14er is? Okay, good, yeah. My wife actually really knows, and the sad part about this trip is that she's not going to be able to go. We went last year together for our first annual hiking trip out in Colorado. She can't go back with me this year, but anyway... Um, a 14er is a 14,000-foot mountain. And so this mountain is Quandry Peak. That's the goal for next Sunday, uh, two Sundays from now, is to top out on the top of Quandry Peak at 14,265 feet above sea level. And when I get to the top of that mountain, I'll have this view, Lord willing. Lord willing, there won't be that much snow, because if there's that much snow, I may not make it to the top of that mountain. Now, in order for me to get to the top of Quandry Peak two weeks from today, there are several things that I must do. Number one, I got to take this 14er deal seriously. I've got to start hiking early that morning. I I must be going into the trip and stay hydrated at that altitude. I'll start out over 10,000 feet that morning. I've got to be properly dressed. They've already had six inches above 12,000 feet in the last couple of weeks, and so I don't know what's left up there, but that much fell. I've got to be properly dressed. I've got to have more clothes in my pack to add as I get, get, gain altitude and get up about 12,000 feet. I've got to have plenty of high-carbohydrates foods to stay fueled up. I've got to keep moving, even though I won't be able to ever fully catch my breath after about 12,000 feet. And i got to keep going when it doesn't feel good anymore to be on this nice, grand idea of a hike, which it will. And perhaps most importantly, I've got to keep thinking about these pictures you've seen and what it will actually look like to be at the top and see the view so meagerly captured in this picture. How many of you have ever been out west and seen the Rockies and just just seen those vistas? pictures just, it's a joke. Like you take a picture because you don't want to forget and you bring it home and you're like, yeah, that's not what it looks like. <laughs> that doesn't show the distance and the vastness and, and the magnificence of, the, of, of what you see. It's not even close. But I've got to keep thinking about the view I'll actually see and get to experience at the top while I'm going up. Or I may decide to turn around and come back down when I can't breathe, when my legs are burning, when everything's hurting, when it gets getting cold. You know, faithfully following Jesus and being used by him for his glory is a lot like conquering a 14er, isn't it? It's a long, hard haul that takes ongoing training and preparation and energy and focus and, and involves spiritual sweat, and it often hurts. Following Jesus requires, as we've been talking about in this little letter of 2 Timothy, gospel-emboldened endurance. That's how we've been thinking about this letter, the second letter of Paul to Timothy. We've been considering it under the heading of gospel-emboldened endurance for Jesus' gospel gathering. If you're visiting with us today, what is Jesus' gospel gathering? That's the local church, isn't it? Uh, the Bible uses a word called, uh, uh, in the Greek, it, it's, it's, it's the word ekklesia. The best translation of that word is not church, which is actually comes from a German word and refers to a building, but rather gathering. 
And that's really a better word. So Jesus' gospel gathering, that's us, the church. And this letter from Paul to Timothy, his, his, his last will and testament, his final and, 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 and one could argue some of his most important thoughts about life in the church, he gives to Timothy, the young pastor of the church at Ephesus. And the focus of this whole letter is, is, is this. Timothy, you and your church must have gospel-emboldened endurance. You need to have endurance for the long haul. This is a climb. This is a race. This thing, this thing about following Jesus and doing the Great Commission, it's huge work. And you've got to every day be emboldened, strengthened, fueled by the gospel so that you can endure the persecution, the opposition, false teaching within, persecution from without, so that you can stand against temptation to sin and just simply throw in the towel and do what feels good. So that you can stay the course in following Jesus and making him known to the world. And in our text for this morning, as we really come to the conclusion of this letter, Paul charges Timothy to finish strong. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Finish strong. That's, that's what I want you to take home. And in specific, from 2 Timothy 3.10 all the way through chapter 4, verse 8, Every Jesus follower can finish strong. I want you to know that. Every Jesus follower can finish strong by fulfilling the ministry Jesus has given to us, each one of us in the body of Christ. We could go to 1 Corinthians 12 and find this there and other places, but each one of you as a Jesus follower have a ministry, amen? God has an assignment for you. It's unique to you. Your gifts are unique, and how you're to use them in this life are unique. And every one of us as Jesus followers can finish life strong by fulfilling the ministry Jesus has given to us. Well, how can we make sure? How can you know that you've done that? How can we finish strong and fully complete the ministry you've been given? There's four things I want you to see from this text this morning. In order to to finish strong, you must stay gospel-focused, You must stay sacrificially committed. You must stay great commission engaged. And you must stay Jesus return ready. We'll unpack those one at a time. Every Jesus follower can, by doing these things, finish strong by fulfilling the ministry that he's given us. First of all, how do we do this? How do we finish strong? How do we fulfill the ministry Jesus has given us? First of all, we must stay gospel-focused. We read it earlier, particularly there in verse 5 of chapter 4. Paul says to Timothy, as for you, and he's contrasting something there. We read it earlier. He's contrasting Timothy with the false teachers, with those who had, had drifted away from the Savior, from the Lord Jesus. From, from, from those who had accumulated in themselves teachers to, to say what they, their itching ears, the text says, wants to hear. As for you, though, Timothy, it's something different. Stay gospel-focused. Always be sober-minded. Now, this doesn't mean just don't get drunk. This means be sober-minded in the context. Remember his charge. His charge to Timothy in verse 2 was what? Well, look at it. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience 
and teaching. Timothy, the word of God, the ministry of the word, proclaiming the message specifically, uh, the whole of the word, but specifically the gospel of Christ must be front and center in your life. You've got to stay gospel focused. Uh, always be sober minded. Always have that as your main thing. And as you are ready in season and out of season, you're to stay gospel focused and preach, which means reprove, rebuke, and exhort based on the word of God, based on the gospel of Christ with complete patience and teaching. Well, what is this word that he's to preach? Second Timothy, if you just look back just a few verses, chapter 3, verses 14 and to 17, he, we read it last Sunday, but we'll read it again. He tells Timothy, but as for you, again, he was contrasting the false teachers. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And how from childhood, what is it that you've learned, Timothy? How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings of Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What's Timothy saying? Timothy is saying, look right up here. Timothy is saying that this book that you hold in your hand, that you have multiple copies of, is the very word of the living God. It's breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. So let me, let me make clear what we believe about this book then. If that is the case, then it is infallible in its original documents. It was, it was, it's perfect. There's no error in it. It communicates nothing but truth, even when we don't understand how all the different parts of it fit together, right? Does Old Testament ever confuse you? I mean, if you're human and you can read, yes, it does. <laughs> Nobody has, can, can, I've never met anybody that was able to sit down and explain to me exactly how every detail of everything goes together. There is an explanation, and there is no contradiction, even though sometimes it seems that there are. There's a plan. There was a, there's a big overarching picture that, that God had in mind. So we believe this is the living Word of God. And Paul says, Timothy, you're to preach that Word. Why? Why is that so vitally important? Well, can I ask you how you came to know Jesus? How many of you were sitting out in your yard one day, a Bible nowhere in sight, no scripture on your mind, and Jesus just zapped you from heaven? Any takers? You see, here's what I know about your salvation. I don't know your testimony. You don't know my testimony, but here's what we have in common if we are his. Even as Paul and Timothy... It is through the Word of God that we come to know the Son of God who is the Savior of the world. We don't worship the Bible, right? The written Word. But through the written Word, we worship the living Word. And without the written Word, we don't know who the living Word is. And so important is the Word of God. It's not ultimate. It's a pointer. It shows us. God incarnate, the only Savior, Jesus Christ, but oh, how important it is. So for Timothy, 
As the pastor of the church at Ephesus, this was a call to faithful preaching of the gospel, most specifically, as contained in the whole counsel of the written word of God. And when he said scriptures or sacred writings, he was talking primarily about the Old Testament at that point in history. He could have been including some other early New Testament documents, but certainly he was referring to the Old Testament. And we believe, based on this, ver- on this passage, the St. Timothy 3, 14 to 17, that even in the Old Testament, there is the message of the gospel that is able to make you wise unto salvation. It's always been the plan of God. The New Testament is not God's plan B. It's the completion and the fulfillment and the, the flower of the plant of his big once-for-all plan from the beginning of salvation. John Piper says this about preaching. This is important for you as the church to know. Some of you will never preach like I'm preaching this morning, but you will preach every day with your life and in your words and witness to those you know and come in contact with. About preaching, John Piper says this, preaching is expository. Expository means that preaching aims to exposit or explain and apply the meaning of the Bible. The reason for this is that the Bible is God's Word, inspired, infallible, profitable, all 66 books of it. The preacher's job is to minimize his own opinions and deliver the truth of God. Every sermon should explain the Bible and then apply it to people's lives. The preacher should do that in a way that enables you to see that the points he is making actually come from the Bible. If you can't see that they come from the Bible, then your faith will be end up resting on a man and not on God's Word. The aim of this exposition is to help you eat and digest biblical truth that will make your spiritual bones more like steel, double the capacity of your spiritual lungs, make the eyes of your heart dazzled with the brightness of the glory of God, and awaken the capacity of your soul for every kind of spiritual enjoyment you didn't even know existed. But not only is preaching exposition, preaching is exaltation. What does exaltation mean? It means praise. It means worship. This means that the preacher does not just explain what's in the Bible and the people do not simply try to understand what he explains. Rather, the preacher and the people exalt, praise, worship over what is in the Bible as it is being explained and applied. Preaching does not come after worship in the order of service. Preaching is worship. The preacher worships over the Word, trying his best to draw you into a worshipful response by the power of the Holy Spirit. My job is not simply to see truth, Piper says, and show it to you. The devil could do that for his own devious reasons. He knows Scripture better than most any of us. My job is to see the glory of the truth and to savor it and exalt over it as I explain it to you and apply it for you. That's one of the differences between a sermon and a lecture. This is what I believe preaching to be. And my primary task for you as your pastor at East LJ Baptist, which is, 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 is why I preach through books of the Bible. Pray that I would stay true and faithful in this calling. But, but what about all of you now? As we think about staying gospel-focused, is there application here for you? When you read that, that, that line, that says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, does, does that mean anything for your life as non-preachers? You bet it does. You and I have the same Bible. You're surrounded by people with eternal souls that need for you who understand the gospel of Jesus Christ to unleash the beauty and power of God's gospel 
That's found in the pages of Scripture into their lives. And what that means is you got to open your mouth and proclaim the message. That's another way of saying preach the Word. You don't have to have three points, a, a cute illustration, and a, and, a, and, a, and a prayer at the end. Just talk to people about Jesus, right? Every Jesus follower can finish strong by fulfilling the ministry Jesus has given us. We do that, first of all, by staying gospel-focused. But secondly, we do it by staying sacrificially committed. Paul tells Timothy there in in verse 5 also, endure suffering. Be sober-minded. Endure suffering. And then verse 6, for I am already being poured out as an offering. Timothy, I want you to endure suffering, but I want you to know I am and have been enduring suffering. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. The time of my my setting sail for eternity has come. The, the word used here for departure refers to the the un, how you untie a boat from the dock and 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 as as a ship begins its journey toward its destination. It's it's the word that's sometimes used used in a number of different ways of, of unshackling a prisoner. Paul says, the time of my departure, my trip to glory, my, my, my setting sail for eternity, it's come, it's now. He knew he would soon die. And he said, and I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Like the wine of the drink offering was poured out over the sacrifices on the altar of the temple in the Old Testament, so Paul's execution would be the last part of his life to be poured out on the altar, along with the many years past of of gospel sacrifice. So many times in prison, so many times beaten with an inch of his life, shipwrecked even as, as he was being persecuted for the gospel, chewed up and spit out emotionally and verbally by his opponents. He knew he would be executed as he writes this letter to Timothy And he knew not only that, he knew that as a Roman citizen, he wouldn't be crucified like what happened to Peter. He knew that he would be beheaded by that swift and yet awfully bloody method of beheading. You ever seen anything beheaded? There's a lot of blood. It just pours out of the body because of the anatomy of the way things work. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul says, Timothy, I have and I am enduring suffering. You endure suffering. Stay sacrificially committed. In verse 7, he puts it this way, I have fought the good fight. Literally, it says, it, literally it says if we use the English uh, for a second, It says, I have fought the good fight. In the Greek, it says, the good fight I have fought, the race I have finished, the faith I have kept. Uh, The different pictures that are are used so many times through Scripture to illustrate what it is to follow Jesus, Paul said, I've done it. Literally, that first phrase says, I have agonized the agony. That's really what's involved there. I have agonized the agony. What is the good fight of faith? Sounds so, so nice. That it's, it's agonizing the agony as you follow Jesus. Why doesn't that sound like our daily walk with Jesus? 
Sure, we're not in a Roman prison fixing to be beheaded, for starters, right? But could it be that our following does nothing to provoke opposition? Could it be that we're not following closely enough to our Lord Jesus Christ to reflect even a semblance of what he looks like to a world that would respond if we did? What an amazing verse this is. We were meditating on this verse yesterday at um, Pat um, Johnson's father's funeral. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Was Paul egotistical in making this statement? No, in another place, Paul would say, you know, here's the deal. I, I worked harder than all the other apostles, but here's the deal. It wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. He knew that, that in his weakness, God was strong. But he could, without regret, say, and in full confidence, I have fought the fight. I didn't throw in the towel before the final round. I have finished the race. I did not sit down on the side of the, the marathon track to rest. I, I crossed the finish line. I'm, I'm there now. I'm fixing to cross it even in my death. I have kept the faith. I did not allow the pain of opposition and persecution and even the, the pain, the self-denial of obedience when we're tempted to do what feels good. I did not let it stop me or ever cause me to let go of the faith and, and trash my relationship with Jesus because I just couldn't do it anymore. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could say, if you could say, if I could say with full confidence and no regrets those words, I have fought the good fight, I have kept, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. But in order to be able to say that, you just got to know something. It's going to hurt. Stay sacrificially committed. You, you, you just have to keep the perspective in life as a believer that being captivated by Christ, you hear us say a lot around here, and seeking to spread our enjoyment of His beauty all over the world, it's going to be an uphill climb. There's going to be moments you can't breathe. Your legs are going to burn. You're not going to want to keep climbing. Because it's just too painful. And within a very short time, you could be back at the hotel in a hot tub, chilling. And the world gives you that opportunity. In fact, they, they, it, it, on the climb of life, they got slides built in for you off the top of those 14ers, spiritually speaking. And here's the, you ain't, you ain't even got to walk back down the mountain. They'll, 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 they'll get you with one of those water slide deals. They'll get you into sin, back into the comforts of sin, just like that, amen? Right? <laughs> that, some of y'all said that in such a way that tells me you have slid down them slides just like I have. It's an uphill climb. Back in 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 13, he says this, You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching... My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You've seen all of my faithfulness, all that I've taught, how I've lived, how I've spoken, the way I believe Jesus in my heart, how I've been patient with others, loved others, how I've never veered off to the right or the left, been steadfast. But then listen to verse 11. 
you followed my persecutions and sufferings. That happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. If you were with us in the last year or so, you've, you, you walked with us through the book of Acts. You, you've been to all those places. You've seen Paul suffer in those places, which persecutions I endured. Go back to Acts, find those words in the text, and read about his sufferings if you're not familiar with them there. And then he says this, Timothy, you've seen my life. You've seen how it goes when you're faithful to Jesus. When you tell the message, when you get out there and say to the world, you cannot get to God on your own. You need a Savior. His name is Jesus. He lived, died, and rose again for you. When you say that, you will be persecuted. And Timothy, it's not just me, verse 12, indeed all who live, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You just got to know it's going to be rough. You just got to understand. And by the way, living a godly life in Christ Jesus, this isn't, this isn't just talking about your morality and how you behave and, and, and just you, know, you being good and not being bad like the world. It's not just a moral statement. It's a gospel statement. You understand, you can't follow Jesus and just be good. You can't follow Jesus without being on mission with him. You can't follow Jesus if you are ashamed of Jesus. Amen? Jesus said, "If you many will say to me, Lord, Lord, that day, Lord, 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 on that day, and, and to them I'll say, I never knew you. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and, and, and my name and my father's name and um, among men here in this generation, you can rest assured my father will be ashamed of you on the day of judgment. So understand that when it talks about living a godly life in Christ Jesus, built in is mission, built in is witness, doing what Paul spent his life doing. He says, you just need to know everybody who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, the people around you that don't care about Jesus and are living in evil and sin, they're just going get, to get worse and worse. Life's just going to flourish for them. They're going to go deeper and deeper in sin, deceiving, deceiving more people. You just got to wake up every day expecting to spiritually sweat, to be called on to sacrifice your comforts, to be opposed, maybe even attacked, and yet endure and keep running. John MacArthur says it this way, you know, you just can't ever take a rest. You just can't ever decide you're going to shut down everything or you'll get killed. The battle never ends, but it is the most noble of fights. It's the fight for the honor of Jesus Christ. It's the fight for the glory of the gospel. It's the fight for the integrity of the word of God. It's the noblest of all fights, listen, because it deals with the eternal destiny of man and the eternal glory of Almighty God. That is the gospel and the ministry of it. Every believer can finish strong by fulfilling the ministry Jesus has given us. We do that by staying gospel-focused. We do that. We do that by staying sacrificially committed. Thirdly, we do that by staying great commission engaged. To Timothy, Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 4, do the work of an evangelist. Now, when he said that, this was not some official thing where, like today, the likes of Billy Graham and others who, 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 who that was their life and their livelihood. They were traveling preachers who went around and talked about the gospel. That's not what was in view here. What is he saying? He's saying, just be the teller of the good news. Do the work of an evangelist. It wasn't some life 
deal. It wasn't a, a, a vocation as such. It, it, it was simply being a believer, being a Christian, following Jesus, do the work of an evangelist. If you have the evangel or the good news, then be a teller of the good news, right? I mean, when you have news, what do you do with it? If it's going to be any good to anybody, you tell it. That's what news is for. Stay great commission engaged. Paul had already talked to Timothy about this back in chapter 1, verse 8, where he said to Timothy, in light of the false teachers and in light of the attacks from without against the body of Christ and the false teaching within the body of Christ there at Ephesus, Paul tells Timothy as the young pastor, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What all's going on there? Do not be ashamed of the testimony, the, the message about our Lord. So if you're not ashamed of news, what do you do? We've already established this. Stay with me. What do you do with the news if you're not ashamed of it? You tell it. And that's what he means, sharing the suffering. Because here's the deal. When you start talking about Jesus, suffering will come. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And you can't live godly in Christ Jesus without telling the news of the gospel that you have. So Paul says, don't be ashamed, Timothy. You keep talking about Jesus. you got one job in this world of, 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 of vital and imminent importance. Primary above everything else in your life is you to tell the news you have from Jesus and about Jesus. And that wasn't just true for Timothy. That's true for you. That's true for me. There's nothing in your life that surpasses the primacy and the, and the importance. There's no calling in your life higher than being a teller of the news that you have. Now, everything else in your life comes under that umbrella. Everything else in your life is flavored and colored and, and whatever else you want to, other picture you want to use, it, it's saturated with that job. Stay Great Commission engaged. Not just knowing the Great Commission, but engaged with it. Are you Great Commission engaged? I didn't ask you if you knew Matthew 28, 18 through 20 that we're about to read. I'm asking, is this engaged? Are you engaged with it? Is it part of your life? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, just before he ascended to heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You, need, you guys, you, you 12, need to understand something. I'm the boss of all bosses. I'm the king of all kings. I reign over the universe. I give you your next breath. I made the sun rise this morning. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And I need to tell you something before I leave. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Because remember, I am the one who has all authority in the universe. That's why you're to go, and as you're going, you're to make disciples, you're to make other followers, you're to point to the one that rules over all things, and you're to teach them everything I've commanded, because I'm the boss. I'm the resurrected master of this world. And behold, isn't this beautiful? That sovereign one, so powerful. I mean, he could have stopped right there. If, if that's who he is, then guess what you get to do when he says jump? Jump and ask how high on the way up, amen? He's the boss. He rules. He gives you life. 
He could have stopped right there, but listen to what he says. And lo, I am with you always. To the end of the age. I'm the king and I'm commanding you to go change the world with my message, with my commands. But I want you to know something. I'm the king who lives with you, who indwells you by his spirit, who will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus, as the king, never has expected you from that moment before he ascended into heaven. He's never expected any of his followers to do the Great Commission without him. So what's your excuse? What's my excuse? When I walk by an opportunity, when I ignore a clear divine appointment, Jesus not only commanded me, He's right there in the moment. He's with me. And if he could lay his life down and take it back up again, he could rise from the dead. Don't you reckon he can handle my fear in that moment of divine appointment where I need to be the one to talk about him? Do you consciously think about Jesus' charge to you as you start your day and as you move through your work day? Are you great commission engaged? Every Jesus follower can finish strong by fulfilling the ministry Jesus has given us by being gospel-focused, by being sacrificially committed, and by being great commission engaged. Fourthly and lastly this morning, by being by staying Jesus return ready. And I kind of made that little deal up. Y'all follow my thought there? Jesus return. He's coming back. And I'm saying we need to stay ready for the return. Stay Jesus return ready. You ready like that? You ready to see him? You ready for him to split the eastern sky and come? Do you wake up every day and say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus? Verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Everything I've said to you and that we've talked about this morning, everything Paul says, I'm giving you this charge in light of, first of all, in the presence of Jesus, and in light of his soon coming. He's here by his Spirit. But he is going to show back up in history face-to-face, visibly, consummately, soon and very soon. And then down in verse 8, when Paul's talking about himself, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness as he looks to eternity, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. What day? The day Jesus comes back. To judge and glorify, judge the world and glorify his people. And not only me, to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says, he's just reflecting on, 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 you know, think, think about it. Paul knows he's fixing to get his head chopped off three miles outside of Rome. He doesn't know exactly where he'll die, but he knows he's, how he's going to die. And just imagine, I mean, give him, give him a break, right? Don't think he's being egotistical. He's worshiping God, man, as he's writing this stuff to, to Timothy. He's saying, I am fixing to be with him. On the day I meet Jesus, I'm going to be awarded that crown. 
He's thinking about all the blessings of salvation that will come to culmination and fulfillment and, 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 and completion the moment he sees his Savior face to face. But not only to me. He kind of got caught up in that moment personally as he's writing there. But not only me, also to all who have loved his appearing. Have you loved his appearing? Do you daily remind yourself of the fast approaching appointment face to face with Jesus? Do we every day love his appearing before it comes? Is it an object today of your affection that Jesus could come back today or tomorrow or the next day? Is that a love of your heart, his coming? See, it changes how you live when it is. Or are we like Demas, who Paul says in verse 10 of chapter 4, if you glance down a couple verses, was in love with this present world? What are you in love with? Are you in love with the world to come, focusing on Jesus' soon return, or are you in love with this present world? Are you just fine to stay at home right here where you are? Is everything just like you like it and like you want it to stay? And is this world good enough? Because if it is, here's the deal, that's what you're going to end up with. What that does is tell, tells, should tell you, and, and, and God already knows it, it, tells, it should tell you about your heart. You don't love Jesus. You may name him and want the benefits of heaven after you finally die because it's inevitable, but you don't love him. And here's the deal. If you don't love him, you really don't, you really don't believe him. You're one of those that say, Lord, Lord, but you don't really follow him. Why? Because you're in love with the present world and, and you're good right where you are. You don't, you, you don't, you don't long to see him. Do you understand how disturbing it should be if you don't long to meet Jesus face to face? Chad, are you saying I should question my salvation? I sure am. If you don't, if you don't love the return of Jesus, that's exactly what I'm saying. You should be shaken right now. You should wonder if you've ever actually personally met him. Because you see, if we've trusted Jesus with the simple dependence of a child, it's not just a matter of the mind. It's a complete changing of affection of the heart. He does something here. The Spirit of God comes to indwell us, and the Spirit of God, Scripture says, creates in us a longing for the presence of the one who died and rose again for us. How could you not want to be with him? I mean, I mean, is that, does that logic make sense? You think that's biblical? I mean, again, remember, remember what I told you my job is to tell what the Bible says. I mean, check it out. I mean, does that sync up with Scripture? Yeah, I think it does. And yet all over this nation, churches are filled with people. I hope it's not this one, but churches are filled with people who name the name but, but are perfectly at home and comfortable in this world and they're nowhere to leave. There's no urgency. It's almost as if they could take heaven or, or leave it. Like, it's better than hell. And when this is all over, so good. Life is so good. I mean, yeah, I don't want to go to hell. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess heaven, streets of gold, you know, all that. By the way, if, if heaven for you is about streets of gold and all that, <laughs> you need to make sure you're going. Because heaven's not about streets of gold and all that. It's about Jesus it's about seeing his face. It's about longing for his appearing. Straight out of the text. Do you want to see him? Are you staying Jesus' return ready? Every follower can finish strong by fulfilling the ministry Jesus has given us. 
You know, not every hiker that stop, starts up Quandry Peak makes it to the top or makes it back down without assistance. This summer, there have already been several tourist hikers who weren't prepared in some way or got off the trail and had uh, have already, at least half a dozen or so, had to be lifted off of various mountain peaks in that area there in Colorado by helicopter after dark because they didn't plan well. They didn't prepare. They, 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 they quit walking. They... They, they, they didn't push through the pain. And I just want you to know, I'm, I'm going to be hiking by myself this year, and I'm going to miss my hiking partner. I'm not taking anything for granted when it's my turn to ascend to 14,265 feet. I'm going to do all I can to be prepared, and I'm going to keep in touch with my resident expert in Dillon, Colorado, Chad Hershberger, who some, who some of you know, my brother-in-law, just in case something happens on that climb. Not everyone who starts or seems to start the race of faith finishes strong. Some get to the end and realize that they've lived distracted lives that were a waste in terms of extending the glory of our Savior and His kingdom. Many quit climbing, quit fighting the fight of faith because it's just too uncomfortable. I pray that I and I pray that you will finish strong. And that the rest of our race will be stronger than it's ever been for Jesus' sake. Amen, church? I was ordained 25 years ago to the gospel ministry. Probably too soon. Probably too young. I was 22 years old. And I figured I've got about that many more years, maybe more, if Jesus doesn't come back and if he wants me to still be here, I hope I don't go 24 more years. I hope he comes back. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. But what that tells me is I'm about halfway. And I need to run the second half harder and with greater focus and commitment and engagement and readiness than I ever have, all by his grace and resurrection power that is in me by his spirit. I want that. What about you? You know, some of you don't have 25 years. Ten, maybe? What are you going to do with those years? Are you going to be focused, committed, engaged, ready to see Jesus? Some of you have 40, 50 years to go. What are you going to do? You're going to be so foolish to think you got the rest of your life. No big deal, no big hurry. Young people your age drop dead every day. Young people your age meet their maker in a car accident every day. God gave you youth and energy that those of us halfway and past don't have anymore so you can spend it running hard, climbing high with the gospel. The great Napoleon on his deathbed said, I die before my time and my body will be given back to the earth to become the food of worms. Such is the fate which so soon awaits the great Napoleon.
if you choose to not finish strong, beginning from now, no matter how many years you have left, if you decide somewhere along the way that following Jesus is just not for you, this, this race is too hard, this climb is too steep, then that is the best part of the hope you have that your body would become the food of worms. Because the Bible says you'll end up in a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is never quenched. You see, finishing strong is not an option. It's a must. Every Jesus follower can finish strong. By fulfilling the ministry Jesus has given to us, you can. I can if we will stay gospel-focused, sacrificially committed, great commission engaged, and Jesus return ready. Let's pray together.